Before we get started today, I want to give a special thanks to Hashtag Paid, our top sponsor this week. Uh, I want to say goodbye to influencers. I want to say hello to creators. You can get your consumers talking about your brand, buying your product with creator marketing. Uh, find out why creator marketing works up to four times better uh, for your customer acquisition dollars by signing up with Hashtag Paid. Go to hashtagpaid.com. Thanks very much. There's never been a better time to be a direct-to-consumer business. Join us as we uncover the strategies and scaling secrets of the world's most disruptive brands and agencies. This is DTC Podcast. Hello and welcome to DTC Podcast. I am Eric Dick along with co-host Kyle Guilfoyle. And today I am very excited to be bringing you a high-end e-commerce experience design talk. We're going to be talking about the new table stakes for D2C brands with Andrea Wagner uh, and Jesse Campbell. So Andrea is design manager at Facebook. She and her team work on Facebook shopping. Andrea has 15 years of experience working in e-commerce design for large enterprises at companies like Razorfish, Sony, and Big Commerce, Big Commerce before joining Facebook. And Jesse is a friend of mine here in Victoria who is a designer and founder of Partner, a design agency that specializes in brand and digital product experiences. He has nearly 15 years of experience in the industry, and he's led projects for some really amazing global brands and top 100 Shopify stores. Welcome to the D2C podcast. How are you both doing? Yeah, great. Great to be here. Really great. Andrea, what's one thing about e-commerce experience that most people do wrong? Oh yeah, right out of the gates with a big one. Um, so I think the biggest thing is actually something really simple, which is forgetting who you're designing for. Um, and that's your customers or your shoppers. I've seen really smart people write all of their website content, do all of their design with all of their own personal preferences in mind, only to find out that it does not land at all with their customers. Uh, so there's really so many ways that you can tap into the mindset of your shoppers. You don't have to have a really big research budget. Um, I think all of your listeners probably know how to work analytics and really understand kind of what is happening. Um, and a really simple thing that people can do with no budget is just simple pathing and stepping back and thinking about, okay, if I were a shopper um, and I had come from point A to point B on this website, why might I be um, you know, leaving or, you know, not scrolling or not clicking that button that I want people to click. Um, there are also, you know, great ways that you can um, run research sessions. Um, if you can offer some form of compensation to get that feedback directly from your customers and even more passive ways that you can collect that using standard website forms. Um, so all of that, I think, will really help um, uh, brands identify potential points of friction. Um, but the number one thing is designing with your customers in mind and trying to set your own preferences and biases aside during the process. Amazing. So how, what are some practical ways? What are some of those easy ways that, that people should start surveying, sur surveying those users right away? That's just in email, in the, in, the, in the onboarding flow after they buy something or on the website. Where do you suggest? Yeah, definitely. Plenty of e-commerce platforms um, offer uh, plugins um, that you can um, uh, extend into your website to be able to kind of capture some of those um, uh, shoppers um, after they've made a purchase or via email. 
Um, you can include, you know, a standard feedback form in the footer of your website. Um, and you can even get more sophisticated and try to run um, user focus groups, leveraging certain cohorts of shoppers that you're specifically targeting, whether those are your highest value shoppers or maybe people who have been purchasers in the past but who have disengaged. I think you'd be surprised how far the promise of, you know, even a $15 Amazon gift card can go to drive some of that participation and invite feedback. And Andre, are there any... Uh... Any favorite go-to questions that you you ask of your users to to get the sort of the juiciest, uh, most actionable feedback from them? Yeah, the I think that the questions will really depend on the thing that you're trying to learn. Um, but one kind of pro tip is um, to make sure that um, you are not kind of defensive when you're conducting any of those feedback sessions, especially if you're live with shoppers. Um, our product, whether that's the website that we've built, the product that we're selling people is really precious to us and means a lot to us. Um, and so it's really important to remember to, you know, set that emotion aside when you're talking to users and try to be really objective and adopt a mentality of seeking to understand. So the best thing to do is to say that at the outset say to the people who you're talking to um, that there are no right or wrong answers, that they're not going to hurt your feelings, and that what you're after is their honest and candid feedback about whatever it is that you're trying to learn. I think that's I good feedback for, for anyone just trying to take feedback ever. I think I've always stood up, you know, I, I've been in those situations where people are, are guarded, you know, they, they come, they, you know, they're interested in help, but then they're very guarded about their decisions as to why. So I think that's just that mindset idea is really good. What were you going to say, Jesse? I was going to say, I remember hearing an anecdote about someone who was doing some live user testing for, I think it was a healthcare uh, website or something that was dealing with a lot of like an, an aging demographic. And so they actually went to a few, this is obviously pre-coronavirus. So they went to some people's homes and looked at their, their computer setups and they found that a lot of, there was like two or three cases where the, the, the person had a sticky note in one corner of their screen to remind them of their Wi-Fi password or to remind them of uh, you know something. And so all of a sudden they realized like, oh, they're actually not seeing this part of the website. Um, and this is, you know, in a user group of 10, we found two or three. And, and I think that's just one of those things to, to sort of like, I guess, get the ego out of it and get the, um, get the like real groundwork happening. Uh, when, when you have those conversations, when you have, uh, like real users in front of you, it, it can be so, uh, so leveraging and so, um, so valuable. So Jesse, on, on your end, what, what, what do you think are some of the things like from, from the, the e-commerce website design experience, what are, what are some of the things people are missing in, in, in this year? I think that it's really easy for companies to bite off more than they can chew. Um, and I've seen this time and time again, especially when it comes to, uh, comes to redesigning or redeveloping a web experience, uh, a company tends to start with a really good hunch. They know who they are, or they know a lot about their product, or they know who they want to be in their customer's eyes. They say, I want to be the Uber for this, or the Casper mattress of that, or whatever it might be. Um, and that can be a really hard thing to do in an online experience. Uh, it can allow companies to get really bogged down into these like nitty gritties of like, we need this exact pop-up and we need, you know, four, you know, four banners and four, like we need all of these features and features and features. Um, so they end up biting off too much and losing sight of how they are different. 
Um, to me, the fix is to understand what problem them, they or their product is solving. Um, and not just on the surface, but like more on an instinctual, on a personal level, what are you solving for your users? Uh, and that's where decisions around design, around optimization, around uh, any sort of product decisions, whether that product is a digital product or building an e-commerce site, that's where those design decisions should actually stem from is what are you trying to solve? And, and so many of them stem from a position of sort of the stock right now. I was saying in a conversation mm -hmm. earlier with, with, with Jesse, I was listening to an, an, an info ad on YouTube about a guy that had just, and we've just created 25 Shopify stores and these Shopify stores are in <laughs> niches and they're going to sell and they're, you know, and, and so this brings me to this idea of table stakes of like, you know, th those, it's funny, whenever you can see things selling in info courses, they probably, you know, that was the thing to have done five years ago, perhaps, right? Uh, and so they're selling it now. And, and, and so they're selling these, these sort of out of the box e-commerce experiences that in a, in a, they may cut the mustard, you know, in a direct, very aggressive sort of direct marketing way in the short term, but they aren't going to be ones that probably last. So I would ask you, Andrea, what are some of the key e-commerce table stakes uh, for websites in 2021? Yeah, totally. Um, I think that the biggest challenges that both brands and consumers face now is actually the rising volume of choice. Um, shoppers have never had more choice when it comes to making purchases online. And that's a problem for, for shoppers in terms of, you know, being able to find the right product for them. And it's also a problem for brands trying to create those authentic um, connections with their consumers. Um, so I think that the things that I see as the rising table stakes might actually sound like really kind of like tried and true um, problems to be solving online. It's just like really how can you kind of, you know, turn it up to 11, so to speak. Um, but I think that discovery will continue to be a problem for brands um, to solve and we'll continue to see you know, the rise of headless commerce, um, further democratization of the influencer economy, and, you know, probably further like micro um, influencers taking hold um, to really help consumers kind of negotiate um, uh, the volume of choice that they have. Um, building trust with your shoppers um, once you are able to captivate them. So how transparent are you being? How, um, uh, how honest are you being? How authentic are you being? How much are you really helping your customers see your product in their life? And that really gets down to demonstrating the product, right? Like the number one reason still to this day that people do not make a purchase online is because they're not confident that the thing that shows up at their front door is going to be the thing for them. Um, and of course, that's getting you know lower and lower because returns are getting easier and easier, but that's still the number one barrier. So what are you doing to show that product as close to real life as possible. So showing it on multiple models, you know, for cosmetics and beauty, showing the product on multiple skin tones is super important. For home goods and things like art, we're seeing AR, VR experiences. Um, but all of it um, really is about um, making sure that you can tell that story in a compelling way where people can see it in their life. Um, and then of course, I think that especially in this economy, things like microfinancing and flexible payment options are going to continue to be really, really important. And even some of that um, coming into the overall business model for things like, you know, a subscription model, um, try before you buy, um, you know, instant, uh, instant returns and things like that, I think are going to continue to push uh, businesses into success in, in 2021.
And these are all tried and true methods here, right? This is this is not not like the whole idea of try before you buy. The you know the idea of being able like you're solving pain points. You know, we, when you can't shop in a store, you can't see what something looks like. You have to go by these this four pictures that so many stores have four or five pictures. Like I, 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 you know, when you're looking at a product, you will scroll through almost all pictures of a product. So, so why not just, you know, really expand what's possible there. I think that's, I think there's a lot of actionable, actionable advice in that alone. Yeah. Very nice. I, I would totally agree with just going back to that sentiment of consumers having uh, a rising volume of choice. Um, there's greater and greater access to products of, of, uh, you know, different brands doing the same thing, access to those products, how you're buying them, what the supply chain is behind them and the pricing around them. Um, I think shopping around for a better price doesn't, it doesn't mean that we need to go to one store and then hop in the car and go to another. Now we can take 30 seconds and actually look in, you know, four different places and find where the cheapest place is. So that doesn't really become a differentiator anymore. I think a, a significant split in e-commerce has happened um, Amazon and, and some of the bigger companies out there, but primarily Amazon, they're going to continue to just push the bottom down. They're going to push their costs down so that more people jump on their bandwagon, um, soaking up a huge bottom end of that market for things like the commodity purchases, um, you know, eventually where we get our toothbrushes and toothpastes and that kind of thing. Um, and that leaves a huge gap out there for companies to serve more specialized markets, um, and that means that they just need to keep pushing their value up, their, their perceived value up. So that means building, you know, again, what Andrea said, building trust. It means delivering really bespoke and personalized experiences and delivering on the things that Amazon can't or won't, like really deep product knowledges or product knowledge or authentic humanized like product demos, as you were talking about with these larger images or really immersive experiences. Uh, these are the variables that are going to build that sort of customer trust and ultimately that loyalty. I, I you know, I'm, I've mentioned it before, but, you know, uh, Shopify published that, that statistic of a 94% conversion lift, essentially in places that were able to adopt these uh, AR, VR product displays that help you feel... Huge. Like, like you're in that situation. I, I want you, we were talking about the bottom end of commerce with Amazon sort of soaking up a lot of that. I, I, I know, you know, there's only so much, Andre, you can sort of say about your, your role at Facebook, but I'm interested in your, first of all, explain to us what headless commerce is and explain to us this sort of trend the, for what we, we might, things we'll be seeing on platforms in coming years. Yeah, definitely. Headless commerce to me, um, other people might have a different definition. So it'll be good to hear what Jesse, what just how Jesse responds as well. But headless commerce to me is basically this notion of, of commerce anywhere. So um, I can be scrolling through a blog, for example, um, see an outfit from this influencer that I that I really love and be able to click a link to purchase those products right then and there, because that blogger has basically taken care of the consideration process entirely for me, right? Um, I trust her style, I trust her opinion, um, I trust the recommendation, and because of that, I'm you know ready to, to make the purchase decision right there. Um, and so as we see, you know, more and more individuals becoming content creators, um, which we definitely, you know, have been seeing um, over the course of the past decade that that's absolutely the case, they're going to be able to confer a lot of trust and be able to shorten that consideration cycle for a lot of the people who follow them and make better and stronger product recommendations. And so I think that's really at the heart of it 
is um, think about um, uh, you know, headless commerce basically as the opportunity for people to, for shoppers to access your products really on any platform and any channel and not being forced into your website to do that. Um, so it's really about, you know, I would say um, uh, almost kind of channel strategy for, um, uh, for uh, kind of a simplistic way of thinking about it. It's really, in yeah, sorry, go ahead, Kyle. Well, not, not to put you guys on the spot, but I'm wondering if like, like I'm, I'm listening to a lot of this stuff and, and it's, it's all amazingly valuable. Um, but I, as a DTC brand owner, um, would love it if you could walk us through some kind of an audit that, you know, I could, I could take my site through right now mm -hmm. so that I can maybe get a sense of what, you know, what my top priorities are for, for 2021. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I'm just wondering, would you guys, would you guys be able to break down like a mini quick audit? I could, as a DTC brand owner, put my website through to, to, you know, really level it up next year. Sure. Maybe, maybe what I can do is kind of add to that definition of what I consider headless e-commerce to be just so that we're kind of defining it in, in the right ways. I think that's like a really, um, a really great and, and sort of, uh, broad description of headless e-commerce, the place, the more narrow spot that I've been focusing on is um, how e-commerce platforms like Shopify or BigCommerce or others um, almost narrowly um, direct their merchants to selling in a certain way. So some of the things that um, I'm considering as a design, uh, as an agency owner is, well, how is, how is my client, how is this merchant uh, structuring their products, what information is uh, is true about their products that Shopify is going to allow us to do, given their sort of black box of technology. And then if we say, well, Shopify is actually really good at certain things, there are other platforms out there, other content management systems that are out there that are better at structuring data for complex uh, products. Like, I mean, we had a conversation about cannabis earlier. Um, that uh, would say, okay, well, Shopify doesn't really do a great job of that. It's still really valuable here, but where can we go to actually uh, create a richer experience that allows us to deliver information and be more transparent and be more sort of forthcoming with all of this product information? And to me, that looks like moving some data over here and maybe not running it on a Shopify theme, but actually doing our own progressive web app that, that um, is able to pull information and uh, uh, create experiences that are much richer, and we have a lot more control over what that what that channel looks like. So headless is both sort of what it, what are all of the channels that you're existing on, and how can we sort of optimize each one, and where is your data living, um, and how are we surfacing that? And and then on the on the extreme end of it, I was listening to the to the uh, my first million podcast the other day. They're referencing this idea of you know everyone having their own store essentially, just sort of like as as creators. Like one of the one of the craziest things you know you were saying over the last ten years, but over the last eight months, I'm sure the creator economy has just you know ballooned, uh, considering the amount of people that have free time and you know aren't making enough money uh, on their hands. And so people, I think, are really are into this like content mentality. Um, and, and that idea that they would have a real democratization, I guess, of, of capitalism is, is what you'd throw around with that. Um, but like, is, do you see that sort of uh, fragment? It's sort of like, it'd be like a 
Amazon. It would be like, because it, it still would be these people's stores. They'd be provided by Facebook or they'd be provided by, you know, some partner essentially, but it would be fully atomized in terms of that customer experience. So it's sort of the mm -hmm. opposite of what you were saying, Jesse, in terms of like a really mm -hmm. curated uh, example as well. So it's interesting. It can kind of encompass all that. Mm -hmm. I do want to, I do want to touch on the question that you brought up, Kyle, because I think that's, it's a good one. And it's one that I haven't really, I haven't got a, a specific sort of funnel down to making a decision of headless or not. Again, from my experience, from my, from my sort of perspective, I'm helping my clients make a decision of how or where they should build their store. And if a, if a product is complex enough, or if the requirements of selling that product are, are complex enough or difficult enough, it's probably easier to, to go with something like a headless Shopify site or a headless. Um, I mean, there are a number of solutions out there, including companies like Snapcart that just allow you to throw a cart onto any website. Um, you know, and there's, there's things like catalog size that, um, servicing 80,000 or surfacing and or searching 80,000, 100,000 products in a catalog uh, can be fairly slow on, on some of the bigger platforms because that's not what they're optimized to do. But um, relying on something a little bit more uh, dedicated to that sort of thing, like Algolia, which is a search, search as a service platform, um, allows us to search through 80,000, 100,000 uh, product variants within an instant and uh, filter on these really specific little things. And I think those are the questions that uh, come up in kickoff meetings or in discussions with a client when we're identifying what should we build here. Um, that's when we need to start looking at like, okay, well, if, if this is true, then maybe um, this specific platform works only this much and we need to sort of bolt onto that. Awesome. And well, and the, the idea of like a, a catalog and a large catalog um, really reminds me of, of, of the uh, original challenge that Andrea brought up, which is uh, choice. And, and in 2021, you know, a real challenge for uh, e-commerce stores is, is going to be to become that go-to choice in a sea of just so many uh, brands. And so what, what seems like a, a viable, like, obviously this is like high, high level, but a viable solution would be to, instead of create a store that has the catalog of, I mean, of course it'll have a catalog of products, but instead of a store that has like just tons and tons of different products, you know, really niching down um, on becoming the best in the world of just one kind of product, kind of like, like we were talking earlier about that t-shirt, like that's kind of what I'm thinking of here that mm. uh, the mm. son of a tailor uh, example where they're really, you know, they're just trying to, to make the best basic t-shirt in the world is kind of what I, what I glean from that. And so then what they're, the opportunities they have available to them is they can then go in, in like crazy detail around the production process of their t-shirts around the, the, you know, the, um, the, the, not ingredients, but you know, like the makeup of the, of those, mm -hmm. of the shirts the and they can like create content around that. Whereas, you know, a store that, you know, like Sears or whatever that has all kinds of products. So it's obviously not as easy for them to do. Um, like what does that, 
does the, do you see DTC brands like do you see that being an avenue for them to to explore in 2021 to to sort of overcome that challenge of of just so much choice? Andrea, do you wanna do you wanna start off there? I have some ideas, but sure, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, uh, I think the answer is yes. And actually, like, when to your question about um, uh, what should I do as a site owner? Well, so first of all, um, there are plenty of resources. I think if you were to Google um, a heuristic or assessment or website heuristics um, on Google. Um, you can find plenty of checklists that can take you, you know, down the rabbit hole of usability for your website design. The number one thing that I would say, the number one problem you need to solve is um, look through the front doors to your website, all of the places that you're sending traffic and that people are going to be coming in through the front door and make sure that for somebody who's never been there before, they understand who you are and what you do. Um, that's the number one thing, um, because without that understanding, those eyeballs are going to bounce and you're not going to have the opportunity to captivate them. So make sure your value proposition is like loud and clear and out front at all of those entry points. That would be kind of the number one thing that I would say. And I think that that's not really, to interrupt, but yeah. that just makes me think of TikTok. I, I like we talk about TikTok all the time here. And I read this really in-depth article on how TikTok engages you from the very first moment that you open it, essentially. It just drops you into this. And, and to me, that's that exact sort of like hook that you that you want to try to create through your, your e-commerce experience as well. It, whether, it, you know, TikTok tells you, you know, shows you a local video. It shows what people are saying about it. It shows all of these things. You just get immersed into it right away. So it's hard not to be ingratiated to it very quickly. So just, just add that. Yeah, totally. TikTok is, is like a total engagement suck. Um, uh, I put off, uh, I put off downloading it for the longest time and now I just like love it. Um, I spend probably way more time than I should admit to anybody, um, uh, on TikTok and, uh, just following all of the memes. Yeah. I'm just kind of like a, <laughs> a lurker. I don't produce any content myself. Um, but yeah, I think that that, you know, captivating moment and that clarity of value proposition would be kind of the number one thing that I would say. Um, uh, navigation and accessibility um, uh, and product findability, um, I think, are, are kind of the other really important things. If the primary thing that your users are there to do is to shop, you want to make sure that search, that navigation, that all of the kind of content strategy and page structure is all set up to get people in meaningful ways connected to those products, um, making sure that you have meaningful product consideration information. Um, so why, you know, uh, Son of a Tailor is a site that I have not spent much time on, but I have to presume that a big reason, a big thing that they need to convince people of is that you should actually wait n number of weeks for this custom t-shirt and pay more than 15 bucks for it because it's that much better, right? And so making sure that that message is really, really clear in the consideration information, like product details, product descriptions, photos, um, all, all of that type of great stuff. Um, from a design perspective, consistency of visuals really matters. We actually know that um, when users see inconsistent imagery, inconsistent button styles, inconsistent placement, it actually detracts from their sense of professionalism of the website. Um, and so while um, some people might be thinking that they're very expressive, it can come off as amateurish and untrustworthy to your shoppers. And so that's something to pay a lot of attention to is could a non-designer kind of pick up on this and think that it's inconsistent or a mistake and that might be sort of detracting. 
Um, speed and performance really play into that too. I think most people know, you know, for things like um, search engine optimization that your site needs to be performant, um, but that definitely plays into um, uh, something that I would suggest be done as an audit. And then of course, like how, you know, quickly and easily can people convert? And after they've done so, how quickly and easily can they get support? So I think that all ties into the, the kind of website audit that, that I would suggest people do. But I think, you know, back to your second question, Kyle, I think the real challenge for direct to consumer brands is why buy from me? Why buy right now? And that gets back to that first point that I, that I mentioned of like having a really clear value proposition. Mm -hmm. It's Fisher Price, stupid, simple, as soon as people hit that front door. Well, and th this is awesome because we, we've been talking a lot about, well, not a ton, but like son of a tailor. And um, earlier we were talking about how it's, it really is a masterclass in, um, you know, just showing a little bit of the look under the hood of the production process of, you know, their products. Um, but, you know, you raise the value proposition thing. And when you go to their site, and I'm not sure if it's intentional, but uh, their value proposition is t-shirts, custom fitted, made to order. And to me, like it's, yeah, it's, it's dead simple and they're letting the rest of the site, you know, do the heavy lifting. Um, but I, I'd actually be curious. So Andrea, you gave a thumbs up. Uh, you think that's a, a, you know, a potent value proposition. I, I just like to get a little temperature check from, uh, from Jesse and Eric, mm -hmm. like what, what do you think of that value proposition? I'm not six, six. <laughs> you know, I, I t-shirts, t-shirts just look great off the rack fit, on me, you, you know, t-shirts yeah. just, I just get an XL and it fits me. Uh, I mean, I would, I would say that my, like that value proposition is the question I had burning in my head when I, when I like prior to discovering it, it was, where can I just order a shirt that is made for me? Hmm. And they yeah. like, they nailed it with the language. They nailed it with putting it front and center. Um, I think, yeah, identifying that, identifying that pain point, even if it's not, I mean, as Eric said, even if it's, if it's not for absolutely everyone, there's, there are 7 billion of us and someone's going to find it and someone's going to find a lot of value in it. Is that the official count from a tall people worldwide association? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so about you, you mentioned something that that just that included one other thing that I that I just throw into the hopper to discuss that that's been on my mind lately. You talked, uh, Andrea, around this idea of you know having to make that connection with people early, early having the um, the the value proposition be crystal clear. But also, I think there's another element too, which is you know whether it's the scarcity that you put on your site. Hmm. for for real reason but, but basically what i'm trying to get to is this idea of the drop model not drop shipping but this idea of creating events around your products rather than just sort of hitting people up on the regular with retargeting and things like that and really building that social experience into the way you sell your products do you see that being a big move uh, in the coming years definitely i think the drop model really kind of depends on your business model right like it works great for covetable brands covetable items maybe even collectible items um and scarcity really is the thing there i've seen um in recent years clothing companies kind of reboot um taking this like very limited you know capsule collection and limited editions type of approach to you know i presume uh, drive consideration a little bit faster, right? Like if I only know there are a hundred of these things out in the world, 
um, it's going to force me to reach a decision point about whether I want to buy that thing or not um, a lot faster. So I definitely see that happening. And I think that e-commerce platforms are taking that a lot more seriously, this drop model, because um, the implications for just like your front end experience and your website, I think, are really big there because um, you could wind up with a situation where the same person gets all of the items in the drop if you you know, aren't throttling traffic and, um, you know, doing things to discourage bots and things like that, which are generally bad outcomes for, for consumers and for brands and in, um, uh, in instances where that happens. But um, some of the language that you used around creating that relationship really kind of resonates with me. I'm being self-referential here, but the places that I spend the most money at are still physical stores where I have a close relationship with the salesperson there. They text me, they send me photos, they say, I think this would go great with the thing that you bought, you know, last year or a couple months ago. And that's really the thing that gets me over the hurdle. And so thinking about new table stakes for 2021, the thing that gets me really excited is what are the ways that DTC brands can replicate that digitally? And so I think we've seen a lot of email marketing started starting to move over to text marketing. That feels a bit more personal. I've started to see a couple of brands adopt text bots so that it does feel a bit more like a conversation where I can say, you know, just really simple things like respond with a number or tell me more and they'll send me more content. So it feels a bit more conversational. And seeing things like, you know, one-on-one -on -one styling appointments and one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, appointments available with brands as well helps replicate that um, relationship um, that I think, you know, really drives loyalty with brands. The icing on the cake is if you can figure out how to get all of that reflected in your website or your app, um, uh, which is definitely uh, a lot of uh, uh, kind of technical uh, choreography um, but it's beautiful. Um, it's a chef's kiss, you know, moment when uh, you when you hit an app or a website and it knows about this thing that you texted somebody about, right? I think there's all sorts of neat develop, developments there. We'll end kind of on, on this question, I think. Um, you know, as a marketer, we're all, and so, you know, I've been part of this entrepreneurial movement of people building Shopify stores and things like that. There's, there's a tug between, you know, trying to create the, the ultimate product or, you know, customer experience and trying to do things for the site in order to increase your sales, your AOV, your, you know, whether, how many brands are still using that, that spin wheel or whatever. So I, I'm just wondering, you know, some final words on, um, yeah on basically like performance versus brand long-term and, 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 and then it, at bonus, Jesse, are there any apps that you think are doing this really well? Are there any apps for, for Shopify stores that are like really uh, doing well right now? I'm going to try and sort of bridge a gap between your last question and this question. Okay. Um, where you were talking about drop models and yeah. um I think in any effort, whether it's doing a drop model or whether it's uh, doing a flash sale or whether it is uh, deciding to sort of take your, your, your company off of a platform and move it to somewhere else. I think the question here is uh, really getting back to some, some sort of instinct, some sort of uh, what instinct am I sort of satisfying in my, in my customer's eyes? Um, I think with the mass drop model, or with the uh, with the drop model, we're getting into like, oh, this is really elite. This is this is going to make me feel 
a little bit sexier. Um, it's going to, this is a, a very sort of coveted place as Andrea put it. Um, but then there's the other side of that, which is more of a consumerism model, which is we're going to put, we're going to push costs down. We're going to have, I think the, the, the site is called MassDrop, where you can create an account. You have access to these 500 pairs of boots that we bought in bulk. So we got them at a lower price. We're going to share that savings with you. And so there's like a couple of different instincts that we you can uh, identify with there and really identifying what your, what your like, what instinct you're getting at in your actions, whether it's, like I said, doing some drop sales or doing uh, a move off of a platform or getting onto another social media platform or something like that. What are you appealing to? And um, I don't think there's an app for that. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but I think no. that's a, a really good sort of source to sort of drive uh, the right sort of direction. Should brands still use Wheelio? <laughs> That's what I'm just looking for an answer I, on. I still have have yet to win. Yeah, <laughs> yo, you always win. You always oh, win right. something That's on Wheelio. Yeah. That's <laughs> nice. Okay, well, I want to thank you both for coming on uh, the podcast today. Uh, we're not exactly sure yet. We may release this as a double barrel two two times a week episode, or we may mash it together into one. But we've uh, ha had a ton of great content today, so I want to thank you both. Uh, for making it happen. Good luck. I'm super excited to see what comes out of the Facebook team, especially in the shopping area. Uh, and yeah, thanks again, uh, everyone. Likewise, thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Have a great day, everyone. Bye. Bye.